0: Kids are making their way to children's church. Toddle time. I continue to be amazed by Jesus, especially in this Sermon on the Mount. President Harry Truman once said, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. However, that's not quite right. Jesus wasn't addressing a nation or the world. He was teaching his followers how to live in contrast to the world. We come this morning to hear Jesus address the issue of anxiety in the lives of his followers. All of us have experience with anxiety, worry, or fear in some form. Some of us experience this cluster of emotions so intensely and so frequently that it cripples our day-to-day lives. But all of us are acquainted with fear to some degree. Let's not be ashamed of this. What Jesus has to say in this passage is going to be readily applicable to every person who listens to it. As author Todd Friel puts it, God loves to take our struggles and transform them into trophies of victory that He places on His mantle of praise. I love that image. Friel expands on this in his book, Stressed Out, A Practical Biblical Approach to Anxiety. He writes... God wants to use your anxiety to teach you, change you, and grow you. If you do not see your negative circumstances as an opportunity to grow, you won't. He goes on to refer to anxiety as an alarm bell that rings. It's time to trust your God. Three times in this paragraph that we're looking at today, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, Jesus is going to command us not to worry. I wonder how you approach these verses when you read them in your daily Bible reading. Do you read through them really quickly, viewing this as another of Jesus' impossible demands? Do you even roll your eyes? Or do you beat yourself up because you can't seem to shake off these feelings of fear? Does this passage cause you to feel hopeless in the face of your repeated failures, your constant fears? Biblical counselor Elise Fitzpatrick says, I know that if you are like me, it may seem that the command not to worry is similar to a command to make myself into a giraffe. She also admits, I worry about the fact that I worry so much while worrying about what might happen if I really gave it up. Perhaps you can relate. Though we are right to recognize that fear can be sinful, we should notice That every time the Bible addresses this issue, it does so with the tone of compassion. Pastor Andy Farmer observes that the consistent tone of Scripture to the worrier is mercy and grace. We'll see that in Jesus' words this morning. I confess that in the past I have treated my wife's worries and my friend's fears with impatience and harshness. I haven't spoken the way Jesus does. Pastor Farmer writes, if you are battling fears and anxiety, know this, the Prince of Peace is never frustrated with you. He has boundless mercy for your fears. The worrier need never worry whether Jesus will have a place in his heart for you. Biblical counselor Ed Welch says, fear and anxiety express our fragility more than our sin. But that is not to say that Jesus is okay with us continuing in our anxiety. He does want to help us grow out of it. After all, the command, fear not, is the most frequently repeated command in all of Scripture. Author Ali Worthington writes, Jesus didn't die on the cross to save our souls from hell, so we would live here on earth riddled with anxiety, worries, and fears. Let's read our passage this morning in full and hear what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Before we dive into the details of the passage, I want to take a few minutes here at the beginning to look at the big picture. It's important to see not only what Jesus says to us here, but also to focus on how He says it. Somewhat surprisingly, perhaps, he argues against our anxiety. That is to say, Jesus addresses our minds with logical argumentation in order to heal our emotions. He opens with a plain prohibition, a command not to worry. Then he explains how to overcome our anxiety by using logical argumentation. In the course of his initial explanation, just following the first command in verse 25, he asks five rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are used to stimulate people's thinking. And he gives two prescriptions, two positive commands for what to do. And both of them are commands to our intellect. Then when he repeats for the second time the prohibition, the command not to worry, he supports that with two logical reasons. After this, he provides the ultimate solution, which involves a change in perspective. And then he attaches a promise to this solution. Finally, when he repeats for the third time the prohibition, the command not to worry, he supports it with two additional logical reasons. It's beyond dispute that Jesus is addressing our intellect, our logical faculties, our minds, in order to help us correct our emotions. This is the normal pattern throughout Scripture. As Sinclair Ferguson says, healing of the diseased spirit, the process Scripture calls sanctification, begins in the mind. The transformation of our character begins with the renewing of our mind. Ali Worthington points out that it is with our thoughts that we decide to believe the lies of the enemy to be our own false prophets of the future and steal our own happiness in life. Our thoughts give life or steal joy. She goes on to observe, we all have bad things happen in life, but it is our thoughts about the bad things that affect us. Now let's dive into this passage. Jesus begins with the word, therefore, in verse 25, Recall what Jesus had just said at the end of verse 24. You cannot serve God and money. This was the concluding statement in his call to us that we must treasure, we must not treasure up treasures on earth. Instead, we are to treasure up treasures in heaven. And the implication of this concluding statement is we do this by serving God. So, You can't serve God and money. And then Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about food, drink, or clothing. That is to say, do not be anxious about the things that money can buy. When you are anxious about these things, it shows, perhaps, that you are serving money and not God. In verse 25, Jesus issues the command, do not be anxious about your life. And then he unpacks your life in terms of what you will eat or what you will drink. Then he adds to this, do not be anxious about your body. And he fleshes out your body in terms of what you will put on. So the command can be easily summarized as, don't worry about food, drink, or clothing for yourself. As support for the prohibition, he asks a dual rhetorical question with two parts to match the two parts of the command. First, is not life more than food? And second, is not the body more than clothing? The answer, to G- the answer Jesus' listeners and we readers should supply to both questions is, yes, of course, life is more than food. Yes, of course, my body is more than clothing. Jesus is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, you're alive, aren't you? You have a body, don't you? Well, who gave you life and a body? The answer, God. God gave you life. God gave you a body. If He did those miraculous and wondrous things, then surely He can be trusted to sustain both life and body. Food, drink, and clothing should be a piece of cake for the God who gives life and creates bodies. The Greek word used here for anxiety depicts turning our total attention to something. Turning our total attention to something. Thus, this word can be used to depict good concerns that we feel. Paul used this word to describe his anxiety, his loving concern for all of his churches. But this turned attention, this decisive focus becomes problematic when our attention is turned away from following Jesus, away from pursuing the righteousness of God's kingdom. Pastor Andy Farmer writes, Worry and anxiety, no matter how intense or pathological they become, are the result of focusing on the wrong things at the expense of the right things. Phobias focus on a particular thing, at the expense of anything else. PTSD focuses on bad experiences, at the expense of anything else. OCD focuses on patterns, at the expense of anything else. Panic attacks focus on fear itself, at the expense of anything else. You and I, in our garden variety anxieties, are distracted by the wrong cares, at the expense of the right cares. In verse 26, Jesus builds his case. He gives the worrier an assignment. Look at the birds. Analyze the birds. What will you see when you do? First, he tells us what we won't see. We won't see the birds sowing, reaping, or gathering into barns. There aren't any farmer birds out there. Second, he tells us what we will see we will see that our Heavenly Father is feeding the birds. Now, think about this. When you look at the birds, do you really see God feeding them? No, you don't. You see the birds catching worms and eating insects. So how can Jesus expect us to see our Heavenly Father feeding the birds? Well, He's expecting His listeners to look at the world through the lens of scripture all the way back in genesis chapter 1 we're told that god gave food for all the birds job 38:41 also indicates that god continues to provide food for the birds so what's the lesson jesus gets us to think it over with another rhetorical question are you not of more value than they Birds are virtually worthless. In another place, Jesus says, two sparrows can be purchased for a penny. And yet, your heavenly Father provides for them. Notice also that God is not the Father of the birds. He is our Father. The birds are not His children. We are His children. It makes logical sense that God will work harder for and take better care of his children. So it makes no sense for his children to worry about food. We should trust our Father to provide our needs. In verse 27, Jesus throws down another rhetorical question to get worriers to think differently. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The point is obvious. Worrying accomplishes nothing One of my favorite quotes about worry goes like this. Worry, like a rocking chair, will give you something to do, but it won't take you anywhere. Jesus is saying that worrying won't make you live longer. In fact, there's good medical evidence that worrying can shorten your life. Anxiety causes all kinds of other health problems, even as health problems can cause anxiety. It's a vicious circle. Author Maria Furlow writes, I know we are often tempted to believe that anxious thoughts might help us. If we ponder them enough, perhaps we'll figure out how to stop bad things from happening. Or maybe if we dwell on them enough, what we fear most won't happen to us. But, of course, Jesus tells us the plain truth here. Worry has no positive effect on our lives. Well, in verses 28 to 30, Jesus gives the worrier a second assignment, but he introduces the assignment with the question, why are you anxious about clothing? Now, I think his original audience could have given some reasons. Clothing provided a measure of physical protection from the elements, and most average folks would probably have owned only one outfit. So if a person's outer garment got damaged or ripped, they might find themselves exposed to the elements. But for a wealthier person, clothing becomes a status symbol. A wealthy person might worry about wearing the right colors to a famous or royal person's home. A wealthy person might worry about wearing the right clothing to impress someone. Jesus dismisses all of those reasons and turns our attention again to God. The assignment this time is to go out and consider how the lilies grow. To study the growing flowers. As in the first assignment, he first tells us what we won't see. We won't see flowers laboring to earn money to buy clothing. And we won't see flowers spinning thread to make their own clothing. Then he tells us what we will see. We will see God dressing the flowers more gloriously than Solomon was dressed. Again, Jesus calls us to return to a biblical understanding of creation where God is responsible for creating the grass and the flowers. But what's the lesson here? What are we who worry to learn from this assignment? Jesus highlights the transient nature of the flowers and the grass. In verse 30, he describes the grass, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Grass was cheap and abundant kindling. God clothes grass and flowers beautifully, magnificently, and grass and flowers don't live very long. So you who would worry about clothing, can't you trust God to clothe you, who will live forever? He may not clothe you with robes like Solomon, but he will clothe you with what you need. He promises to provide protection for his children. And if clothing is a status symbol... God has already changed our identity and he promises to transform us so that we will actually look like who we are, the righteous children of God. Now at the end of verse 30, Jesus addresses his disciples as you of little faith. Sometimes when we read this, we can draw the wrong conclusion. I've heard people say, oh great, now Jesus is telling me I have a faith problem. I thought I just had an anxiety problem, but he's saying there's actually something wrong with my faith. We heap up guilt on our shoulders. It's the same feeling we can get when we hear that worry is a sin. But I hope you can see how Jesus is gently, compassionately coming alongside us and carefully identifying the root issue. If you go to the doctor complaining of a mild pain in your abdomen, and after he checks you out, he discovers an appendicitis, aren't you grateful that he discovered the real problem in time to apply the proper cure? Jesus repeatedly identified little faith in his disciples, and there's a common denominator every time he does so. In each case, the disciples have done something or said something that revealed quite plainly that they did not believe that God was with them, and therefore they were fearful. Think of them panicking in the face of a storm on the Sea of Galilee while Jesus was asleep in the boat. Or remember when they saw Jesus walking to them on the water in the midst of a storm, Pastor Andy Farmer says, in these situations, the disciples have to practically stumble over Jesus to get to fear. And he has to perform a miracle to remind them why fear is absurd. Earlier, I quoted Todd Friel to remind us that we should view our anxieties as opportunities that God will use to grow our faith. Anxiety brings our lack of faith into view. We only hurt ourselves and resist healing when we refuse to admit our little faith when we're anxious. Todd Friel adds, Jesus did not say you are not a believer when you're anxious. He said you're merely acting like an unbeliever. Jesus did not say that you are not saved, but he made it clear that you are acting like you are not. That's exactly what Jesus clarifies in the next verse. In verse 31, he repeats the command do not be anxious for the second time, and he shows that our words are often the way we reveal our anxiety. Following the command in verse 32, he provides two logical reasons why we shouldn't worry, a negative reason and a positive reason. First, the negative reason is what Todd Friel was just saying. Worrying about food, drink, and clothing is what Gentiles do. As a Jew, by referring to Gentiles, Jesus is referring to pagans, idolaters. He is indicating that worry is a form of idolatry, characteristic of those outside the kingdom of God, those who don't have God as their Heavenly Father. When we worry, we are acting like orphans. We are acting like idol-worshipping pagans. Jesus then adds a positive reason not to worry. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So Jesus acknowledges that food, drink, and clothing are legitimate needs that his followers will experience. Children shouldn't have to worry whether they are going to be fed and clothed. Feeding and clothing children is the responsibility of parents. Biblically, it's especially the responsibility of fathers. And with our Heavenly Father, there is never a question of whether he has enough resources or whether he is aware of our needs. In fact, we need to acknowledge that he knows our needs better than we do. Often, we fuel our anxieties by defining our needs in certain ways that go beyond how God defines our needs in Scripture. We view our desires as needs, and when they are not met, we grow anxious and discontented if we would only trust our Heavenly Father knows what we truly need, couldn't we also trust that He will meet our needs in the best way and in the best time? In verse 33, Jesus provides the ultimate prescription. What should we do instead of worry about these things? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is the most famous verse in the passage But can we slow down and really see, take in what he means? The command is to seek. I don't think Jesus means that we're looking for something that we need to find because Jesus has been announcing the arrival of God's kingdom in his ministry. The summary of Jesus' message was given to us back in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the king, and his followers are citizens of this heavenly kingdom that he has brought to the earth. So for followers of Jesus, we've already found the kingdom. So how does he mean for us to seek it? In the previous verse, he said that the Gentiles seek after food, drink, and clothing. They are anxious about these things. They strive for them, focus their attention on them, and apply all their energies to get them. Jesus actually uses a slightly different word for seek in verse 33. We are not to be anxious for the kingdom, but we are to make it our ordinary pursuit. And Jesus says that we should seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. What is the emphasis on first? This pursuit should be our greatest priority in life. In fact, I think Jesus means for us to view our needs and all our other pursuits through the lens of the kingdom. And I don't think Jesus is telling us to seek two different things. God's kingdom and God's righteousness are one idea, or at least they are two sides of the same coin. God's rule over His people includes His commands how he wants his people to live. And his righteousness refers to his people's submission to his rule, their obedience to the king's commandments. The righteousness of God's kingdom is the right way of living in God's kingdom. Jesus is saying, instead of worrying about the provision of your own needs... Focus on pursuing obedience to the King in every area of your lives. So how does this provide the remedy for anxiety? Well, I think Jesus wants us to focus our full attention on obeying Jesus, on living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, on living out the righteousness that exceeds the so-called righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. We can only do that if we put on... ...our kingdom glasses. I know some of you can't see this, so you can on the screen a little bit better. Now, there's only one pair of these. These are one of a kind. I had an old friend of mine, an engineer named Scott Case, to design and fabricate these for me a few years ago... ...and he was gracious to do so. But while you can't go out and buy one of these, wearing kingdom glasses is for all of us... It's for every follower of Jesus. And what this is supposed to illustrate for you is the idea of viewing our struggles, viewing our suffering, viewing our sin through the lens of the kingdom. And that will be central to any strategy to overcome anxiety in your life. In the Lord's Prayer, we learn to desire and to ask for God's name to be hallowed, God's kingdom to be experienced, and God's will to be obeyed. And then we may ask for our Heavenly Father to provide our daily needs, our daily bread. Eternal life is more important than eating food, even if you starve to death. The hope of a resurrected body is more important than wearing clothing, even if you die of exposure or if you are not admired because of your clothing. Kingdom glasses help you see life more clearly. With these glasses, you can see that Jesus is really sitting on the throne. You can see that God really does provide for the needs of his children. You can see that, as Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These glasses help us see ourselves more clearly, and they help us see God more clearly. This passage teaches us that God is our Heavenly Father who cares for us, who promises to provide for us, who has the power and resources to provide for us abundantly. This passage teaches us that we are His children, more valuable than all the rest of His creation. Jesus calls us to make obeying Jesus, pursuing righteousness, as our first priority. And that means we need to see our suffering and our sin through the lens of the kingdom. The King uses all of our experiences, even of suffering and even of sin, for our good. We'll come back to that idea in just a bit. And I'm going to drop these right here. For the time being. Jesus promises us here that as we make this pursuit our first priority and allow our perceived needs to take a back seat in our minds, our Heavenly Father will provide our true needs. Jesus closes this section with a third reiteration of the command, do not be anxious, but this time he broadens it out. And I think this is really helpful If we had stopped in the previous verse, we might have thought that this teaching only covers being worried about food, drink, and clothing, or worrying only about life's necessities. However, in verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. This is anxiety 101. Worrying, by and large, has to do with the future, Jesus says, don't worry about anything that could happen in the future. Seeking first God's kingdom righteousness changes the way we view the future as well. These kingdom glasses enable us to see the future through the lenses of truth and hope. Also, these kingdom glasses are corrective lenses that shape our experiences, shape our expectations and help us master our imaginations. Some of us have very vivid imaginations, which can be used for God's kingdom purposes, or they can be used to distract us, dampen our hope, and darken our path. At least Fitzpatrick writes, undisciplined imaginations are the cause of discouragement and anxiety. There are other causes... But when thinking about the future, this is certainly a good place to begin. We have a tendency to fill in the gaps of our knowledge with what seems true or feels right to us. And anxiety thrives on this kind of imaginative exercise. When we start imagining things in the future, it's important that we learn how to properly include God in the picture. Maria Furlow, who I quoted earlier, wrote a book entitled Breaking the Fear Cycle, How to Find Peace for Your Anxious Heart. Throughout the book, she tells the heartbreaking story of how she processed a pregnancy that the doctors told her was going to end with her baby dying. It is a heartbreaking story, but it is also a heart-healing story because God taught her so much through the experience that she was able to use In later years, she wrestled with anxiety as she had to decide whether or not to allow the baby to be born, knowing that he wouldn't live very long. She did, and her son Gideon lived in this world for just a few minutes. Later on, when she got pregnant again, she had to wrestle with the anxiety of whether there would be something wrong with this baby. So she's got extensive experience with looking to the future and imagining the worst. She writes, "...whether it is fearing my husband dying in a car crash, fearing my kids getting a bad health diagnosis, or fearing the possibility of losing a job, any and all fears take my mind out of the present and into the future." These anxious thoughts distract me from what I am experiencing in the now and cause me to imagine a series of events that could happen later. In all of my fearful fabrications, never once did I insert the presence and the power of the living God. My fearful thoughts never bothered to include God. I wonder, is that your experience? when you consider what might happen tomorrow, when you start asking what-if questions, can you see God being involved? If God is our Heavenly Father the way Jesus describes, if Jesus is the gloriously loving King that He is portrayed to be in Scripture, shouldn't we be able to think of ways He might act for our good in our future scenario building? Ms. Furlow goes on, When you picture the future, do you see God there? Too often, when our brains are fixed on the worst-case scenario, we don't imagine God meeting us there. Surely, that, whatever the that is for you, would be so terrible, even God could not reach me in that place. As a result, it's tempting to convince ourselves that clearly we know what is best. Our logic and analysis lead us to believe that we, and we alone, know the best nicest, and loveliest plan for our future. The truth is, we take God right out of the picture. The way we imagine the future, the way we worry about what might happen, has a real negative impact on the way we experience life today. Worry about tomorrow steals joy from today. And you need to face this in your own life. It's not anything or anyone outside of yourself stealing your joy. It's you. It's me. I am, as always, my own worst enemy. Satan doesn't hold a candle to the amount of damage I do to myself on a day-to-day basis. And most often, the weapon I use is the what-if game. Instead of jumping on a personal soapbox here about the havoc I've seen asking what if about the future in my own life, let me quote Allie Worthington again. She writes, Fear is a liar. Fear turns our what ifs into certainties, freezing our faith and flipping our world upside down. I realize asking what if is a part of good planning contempting to anticipate negative consequences so I can correct my choices today. But you know the difference between a healthy what if and a what if that strangles you, don't you? What if they get angry because of what I say? They might, so I'd better not say anything. What if my daughter resents me because she perceives me as harsh? She might, so I'd better not spank her. What if my wife gets attacked by a gang of thugs? She might, so I'd better not drive in that part of town. What if I get cancer at 40? All of these what-if questions are expressions of fear, and none of them considers God's involvement. All of them have to do with fearing pain and suffering of some kind. I used to think that I really didn't struggle with anxiety. I'm not much of a worrier in general, but after over a decade of marriage, my wife and I both discovered something about me that we didn't know before. A few years ago, I got the flu and had to go to the ER. I was dehydrated significantly and needed fluids. While I was there, I was aching all over and had a bad fever, but beyond that, I was shivering uncontrollably and had begun hyperventilating. I couldn't catch my breath. Tamara realized that I was having a panic attack. And looking back, we both recognize that this has happened to me many times before. I experience panic attacks when I am in pain, particularly internal pain where I can't see the cause or the source. So I am well acquainted with a deep fear response after all. And while the cause is immediate and present, it really does have a future orientation. I'm afraid my body is going to shut down. Or worse, I'm afraid my body is going to kill me. Distracting me from the source of the present pain with YouTube videos helps calm my symptoms. But only one thing settles me into a true experience of lasting peace. Putting on my kingdom glasses and remembering that my Heavenly Father is loving me in this moment. King Jesus is ruling over me in this moment. And He has promised good to me always. Maria Furlow recognized that God never promised His children would not experience pain and suffering. She writes, God's Word is good. It is holy, reliable, powerful, mysterious, and righteous. And there are no promises that tell me my worst fears will not come true. God does not promise us a pain-free existence. But, Then she acknowledges that her expectations of what her heavenly father would do still didn't match what he'd actually said in scripture. She adds, I had hopes that God would work on my terms because clearly God has given me a rational brain, and my rational brain deduced very logically that losing a baby was not best for my life. Didn't he know that this was not on the list of things I could survive? Can't you relate? When you look at the future, don't you have a list of things that make you say, I could never face that. I could never go through that. Can we just be honest? We don't like it that God sometimes, perhaps even often, chooses not to relieve our pain, spare us from suffering, or remove our troubles. And when we think about the future possibility of trouble, we don't really expect God to be there with us in it. But that's exactly what He has promised to us. He hasn't promised us that we won't experience what we fear the most, but He has promised that He will walk with us through the pain. He's actually promised more than that, hasn't He? He's actually promised to use all of our pain for our Benefit. Maria Furlow, once again, has a good word for us. She writes, God is good and uses all the moments of our lives to bring us into His likeness. All the moments. At the same time, our loving Heavenly Father has promised to protect us. He's our Father, after all. But allow me to quote Ms. Furlow once more. God does promise, God does promise to keep us from any and all harm that he has not allowed. Not a hair on our heads can be touched without permission from the sovereign God of the universe. We are quite literally untouchable. There is no such thing as arbitrary or random. Harm that can come to us. If this is true, and it is, worry about the future possible harm that could come to us is the ultimate exercise in futility. Not only are we stealing our joy today, but also we are casting a dark cloud over the good that God will do for us in the future. We're hindering our own ability to see it when it comes. Back to Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 34. After repeating the command not to be anxious for the third time, he adds two additional logical reasons. First, he says, tomorrow will be anxious for itself. What does this mean? I think he's basically saying, you will never live in tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow is always tomorrow. The future is always ahead Deal with life one day at a time. And ultimately, he's saying that when you get to tomorrow, God will give you what you need to face those things. God provides grace day by day. You are worried that you won't be able to handle something that might happen in the future. If you are a child of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, guess what? He has promised that He will give you what you need when that day comes. If I get cancer at 40, God will be there on that day to enable me to handle it, whatever handle it needs to mean. My responsibility is to pursue obedience to Jesus today. When that day of trouble comes that I'm worried about, whatever it might look like, my responsibility on that day will be the same. And God has promised to be there to provide what I need. He has promised to use the pain, to use the loss, to use the suffering for my good. So why should I waste energy today, worried about how bad it's going to be? Max Licato paraphrases this statement like this, God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Licato is addressing mothers in particular, and he elaborates on this by focusing on the phrase, When the time comes. He quotes a mother who might say, I don't know what I'll do if my husband dies. And then he responds, You will when the time comes. When my children leave the house, I don't think that I can take it. It won't be easy, but strength will arrive when the time comes. Locato concludes, The key is this. Meet today's problems with today's strength. Don't start tackling tomorrow's problems until tomorrow. You do not have tomorrow's strength yet. You simply have enough for today. Jesus' final word is a proverb. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus has promised that his followers will experience trouble, tribulation, pain, and suffering. Following Jesus does not exempt us from the pain of the world. But... Jesus' point here is that today has enough trouble of its own. So how can we waste the energy we need to deal with today's trouble by worrying about possible troubles that may come tomorrow? John Stott says, Each day has troubles enough of its own, so why anticipate them? If we do, we double them. For if our fear does not materialize, we have worried twice instead of once. In both cases, it is foolish. Worry doubles trouble. How often have I looked at the calendar and seen some uncomfortable thing scheduled for tomorrow, and I feel a sense of foreboding and dread. Tomorrow I've got a dentist appointment. Oh, that's not going to be fun. What if I have a cavity? What if I need a root canal? Not only did I just waste a few minutes or longer focusing on that, I also felt these negative emotions that have a tendency to leak out in other areas. I start snapping at my wife. It has nothing to do with what she said or what she did. I'm just irritated about what I've got to do tomorrow and how bad it might be. Anxiety, worry, and fear have a tendency to produce other kinds of sin in our lives. When we're afraid, we act out. When we're afraid, we say hurtful things to people. We can easily slip into control mode. We manipulate people, or we try to manipulate circumstances to avoid what we fear is going to happen. Allie Worthington says, fear tells us to hold on for dear life to the things that are dear to us. Believing this keeps us from enjoying life because we are so busy trying to control everything. We need to admit that we actually like being in control, or the illusion of being in control at any rate. Maria Furlow admits this and gives some good perspective when she writes, we can control only so much, we have got to give it up. No, not just kind of give it up, or sort of give it up, or just for one day give it up. No, we must give it up entirely entirely. We need to come to the complete and utter end of ourselves, take our death grip off of wanting control, and finally submit to the fact that God is simply better at being in control than we are. When we try to take the reins of our life, we're expressing our little faith. We're demonstrating that we don't really believe God can handle what's going on. We don't believe that God is going to do good through something bad. And we turn inward and begin trusting ourselves. We slip into believing that we are sufficient in ourselves. My thoughts, my abilities, my strength, I can handle this on my own. What can we do? Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom righteousness. What does that look like? We need to wear our kingdom glasses at all times. We need to learn to view our current circumstances and our future possibilities through the lens of God's kingdom, trusting in our Father to provide our needs, trusting King Jesus to protect us from harm, to use all that happens in our lives for ultimate good, and to walk with us through whatever we face. But let me give three other practical pieces of advice. First, Beware of feeding fear. I've read several books from several different authors and perspectives about anxiety over the years. Because I need help. And I am amazed and comforted that almost all of them mentioned something about this. They all shared experiences of how they realized that their media diets had been feeding and fueling their anxieties. Watching TV news... And reading news articles online about all the terrible things happening in the world contributed significantly to their negative outlook on their own or their children's future. Each of them decided, for their own good, that they would stop completely paying attention to the news. After some time not reading online news and not watching TV news, they all reported significantly less Anxiety about the future. Consider honestly whether you need to take this step for yourself. Secondly, you need other people. And you need to listen to other people who will talk with you about your fears. When Jesus says to seek God's kingdom, we need to remember that God's kingdom is made up of people. A whole bunch of different people seeking to follow Jesus. We don't avail ourselves of the very thing that God has offered to provide for us. After all, in God's kingdom, how is it that He provides food, drink, and clothing? Very often, He provides those things through His people. We shouldn't worry about food, drink, or clothing because... Followers of Jesus will provide these things for other followers of Jesus when the need arises. Now, unfortunately, we fail in this area sometimes, which contributes to some people's anxiety. Nevertheless, God has designed the members of the church to provide for each other. And He often delights to use other people to help us conquer our fears. Pastor Andy Farmer writes, often what seems like a chaotic emotional mess to us is really an entrenched pattern of thinking and doing that others see rather clearly. When someone says to you, it sounds like you're worried about what's going to happen, don't get self-defensive, listen to their perspective. They might see something you can't. They might hear something in what you've said that you didn't even realize was there. This means that you're going to need to cultivate some authentic relationships where you can be vulnerable and admit your fears. But hear this wise word of caution from Allie Worthington. Of course, you want to be careful that your battle buddies are people you can lean on. You don't want someone who will feed your fears by indulging them or expanding on them. But you also don't want someone who will make you feel insecure for having them. Instead, you want a battle buddy who will listen to your fears up to a point. Then help you get some perspective on the situation. And I would add to that the counsel that you need to be careful how you counsel others. Can you be a good, supportive friend and not only listen, but also be willing to provide some corrective perspective? Be careful not to fuel someone else's fears. Point them to Jesus. Help them to understand their Heavenly Father's care for them and express compassion and empathy for the struggle. Sometimes we're going to need help putting on our kingdom glasses. Finally, people who worry a lot tend to be full of regrets and disappointments from the past. Warren Wiersbe has said, the average person is being crucified between two thieves, the regrets of yesterday and the worries of tomorrow. Consequently, he can't enjoy today. When you talk about the past, do you often say things like, I wish I would have, Or when you look back at your life, do you dwell on things that you wish didn't happen to you? This attitude about your past actually fuels your worries about the future. Your disappointments lead you to expect more disappointments in the future. You might need to put on your kingdom glasses as you review your past. This is actually easier than looking to the future with your kingdom glasses. When you look at the past with kingdom glasses... You can always know that what has happened to you and the choices you made were a part of God's good plan. Every bit of it. And you can start looking for how your Heavenly Father was with you, was loving you, and was providing for you, even in the most horrible things. This should move you toward expressing gratitude, saying, thank you. To God, for painful circumstances in your past. Seeing the good God has done and expressing gratitude primes us to overcome anxiety and to look to the future with much more hope. If you can look at your past through kingdom glasses and see these things more clearly, then I think you'll find your perspective on the future improving. Jesus died to pay For your sinful anxiety. Jesus rose from the dead, promising to work in and through every situation that provokes us to fear. He walks with us through pain and suffering, and He puts His arm around us when we're afraid. Can we do that for each other instead of being quick to chastise? Let us walk with each other through our fears and face them together knowing that that's exactly what Jesus would do were He with us physically. And that's what He does spiritually every single time you're afraid. He's there with you. In the moment of fear, we need to remember and believe His presence with us. And we need to trust Him to help us in our weakness we look forward to the day when there will be no fear-inducing threats and there will be no weakness in us that turns us to worry about the future. In the meantime, when we find ourselves anxious about the future, perhaps we need to cast our gaze just a bit further into the future to that coming new creation. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, both back On what he's done for us on the cross and in the resurrection and ahead to his return. We can grow out of our little faith and we can trust our Father to provide for us in the meantime. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these hard words. We are challenged because we are fearful. We live in a world that has real threats. And you don't call us to ignore those threats or be naive about them. But when we feel fear, help us to turn to you quickly. To rest in you and to find you satisfying all of our needs. May we be enriched in the coming year as there may be more threats yet to come that would cause us to worry, cause us to fear. Would you help us to turn to you, to rest in you, to live with this perspective that reminds us constantly that you are our Father and you really do rule the future. Help us to trust you moment by moment. Help us to grow out of our little faith. Help us to be quick to admit it when it's there, not to cover it over or be ashamed. Forgive us for the times that we have shamed each other because of our fear forgive us and help us to repent and to move toward greater gentleness greater compassion deeper love for one another that would be willing to go to battle with the things that make us afraid for each other and for christ's sake it's in his name that we pray amen